Welcome to the World Wild Podcast, our first ever episode. And so let me just explain to begin with what this is all about. Well, the clue is first of all in the name. This is the World Wild Podcast and we wanted to look at the wildness of the world and to bring wildness back as the um, overarching principle that guides human society just as it is the overarching principle that guides the rest of organic life. So it's um, essentially going to be looking at a lot of the threads of thought and activity which are being dubbed rewilding these days such as rewilding landscapes and um, people talking about rewilding our guts but we just want to extend that principle really across and through you know all the different aspects of human life recognizing that our roots and our origins as a species are in the wildness of ecology and that somehow or another we've moved into a rather different space rather than wildness we've moved into a space that's that's characterized by control and so just looking back to very early primitive societies uh, oh dear i can't believe i said that very early hunter-gatherer societies not primitive at all um, societies which were really characterized by the fact that they didn't control and dominate landscapes they worked with landscapes they worked with other species and really their first and foremost attitude towards their surroundings and ecology and each other and their bodies would be characterized by the word trust and so i think that's a that's an important thing that we look at when we say that there is something to be gained by moving away from sort of mechanistic paradigms because uh, we will explore very much that the idea of mechanization uh, is one of a certain kind of control um, and also decontextualization that's another aspect of mechanization so if we find ourselves trusting our surroundings if we find ourselves trusting our bodies if we find ourselves trusting other people even and that's going to be another important aspect uh, which which i hope to to raise the sort of um, the whole field of interpersonal neurobiology is another area of, of uh, rewilding, in my opinion, which we will be exploring. In terms of what we will practically do, um, I think we'll do very little else other than just have interesting conversations with people who are working in this kind of area. Um, I could say interviews, but they're not really interviews. What I've realized is that um, I personally have a lot of conversations with people on these kind of lines and um, they're, they're very worthwhile conversations for me and, and I, I think for, for friends that I'm talking with and I would like to get those conversations out there so as to um, really draw others in to the same trains of thought that have been explored and that's really the purpose of the World Wild podcast is to get a conversation about uh, wildness and trust and freedom and the ways that those themes could be reworked back into the mix of how we as a civilization operate, how we produce the things that we need, um, or, or at least how we um, partake of the things that we need, because obviously uh, the, this whole idea is that, that a lot of stuff that we need is being produced by wild ecology and, and we could be tapping into it, we could be um, availing ourselves of it. And then better still, we could be moving into a space like our um, hunter-gatherer ancestors did, where they didn't control their environment um, in the kind of way of, of total dominance that we have with the agricultural paradigm. But they did do a very um, great deal to alter and 
disrupt, disturb, enhance, however you want to look at it. But they did things like, you know, burning whole areas, um, weeding out certain plants and encouraging others. They, they had a, a, a profound influence on populations of plants, animals and other species, which meant that the uh, ecosystems where they lived were, were radically altered and yet they flourished. So the um, biodiversity didn't decrease, it increased, the biomass almost certainly increased. I'm thinking of places like um, Australia before the um, white settlement. I'm thinking of places like California um, in, in the United States before the white, white settlement, across the whole United States, but California is a particularly striking example of a, of a very, very abundant landscape. Um, and um, of course the, the common theme here is before white settlement. Um, but of course, we were indigenous once too. You know, Europe was once a place of hunter-gatherers. So um, part of the, the, the uh, interest that I have long-term is trying to look back into that past uh, before it was disrupted by colonization from um, the Middle East uh, way back um, several thousand years ago. Um, there is a thing that we um, basically do when, when we look towards the wild and that is that we trust the system. So here are these extraordinary systems of ecology, um, of our own physiology and neurophysiology, of the, um, the nature of our evolved relations with other people and, and with other species. In fact, the, the evolved fact that we are basically a relational beings, um, as, as all living beings are, but as humans even more so because of the advanced capacity that we have for interpersonal relationships and inter interdependency. So these are all systems which have evolved over um, billions and millions of years to the point where they are incredibly robust. If you look at how ecology works and how everything is supported mutually within that system, if you look at how our bodies work and see the complexities uh, of how that system works, and, and that's also an ecological system when we consider the the many uh, species of bacteria and other microorganisms that we are in relationship with. Um, and we see that this is, these, these are systems which really work. And where something works, it's uh, another way to see that is that it's something that can be trusted and leaned back upon. I would say that our um, response to the, the wild ecosystems in which we, we began to start controlling and farming um, was was that big step back in the Neolithic era? It was a movement away from trust, and I would say that that was essentially um, a fearful reaction. Um, or at least we can certainly look at the continuation of it um, as a fearful reaction, as we've now extended our reach into um, a sphere of control through uh, the Industrial Revolution and the uh, Green Revolution where we control things much more now in the last couple of hundred years and now we're moving further and further into technological paradigms in the present century. I would say all of this um, is in danger of being a, a, a deeper and deeper dig into a, a pit of, of control rather than um, a, a way of trust. And that pit of control is having terrible repercussions. Um, people people are, are, are less free because um, of it. And so um, what we look at is many, many different ideas over the next coming weeks and months, um, however long the World Wild podcast continues, that we'll look at how the different threads of rewilding 
um, are a return to a paradigm of trust. They are um, a return to a paradigm of, of greater freedom. Because when you're not busy thinking about how to control things all the time, you have uh, the, the, the freedom to, 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 to be and the freedom to enjoy the relationships that you have with all the things that you're trusting. When you're trying to keep your eye on a ball with all the many things that you're trying to control, that is a very uh, stressful situation. And um, I think one thing that's going to run right through this is a recent discovery of mine, the polyvagal theory, which is a different, uh, a particular thread of the interpersonal neurobiology science. And that looks at how we are basically in a thriving state when we are in um, an engaged state, when we are relating in a trusting way with others. And yet, um, since we don't find ourselves in that state very often, the reality is that we're in an advanced state of fight or flight, where we are seeing the outside world as a problem that needs to be conquered, defended against, or, um, or protected from. And so you see that the, uh, the paradigm of trust that we're looking at um, is one that is, is a gateway into relatedness to our surroundings. It's a gateway into um, a kind of freedom where we are basically relying on many factors outside of our own selves to take care of us and to have our backs, as it were, which is why we're able to lean back and, and, and trust those things. So um, the, the point is to look at how... In, in looking at rewilding our civilizations, we, we look at uh, not going back, but going forwards. As, as um, my friend Tornor Tranda said, is we're looking at a high-tech Stone Age. Now, whilst Tor, I think, is slightly more of a fan of technology than I am, um, there's no doubt that technology has to be part of our future. And so we're looking at reimagining the future in terms of basically the relationship that... Um, earlier peoples, hunter-gatherer societies had with their, with their land. We can't repeat the uh, exact scenario because the population densities are much greater now. But it's my um, certain belief that if we change the paradigm from control to trust, we um, then would be looking at harnessing all the resources that we have now, and they include technology and especially the, uh, the, the capacity for global communications that we have for us to experiment and see how we can um, see ecosystems able to produce the kind of resources that we need. And when I say ecosystems, I'm also imagining ecosystems that don't exist now, things that um, we could uh, facilitate the uh, development of, of uh, complex ecological relationships which don't currently exist, um, that would be highly productive. Of, um, of resources, not just for us, but for other species. So there's a lot of imagining and dreaming going on here at the Wild, World Wild podcast. And so um, these conversations that I've already alluded to, um, I think one of the essential qualities will be that we, uh, we think together, um, we reason together, but we also dream and imagine together. And I'm hoping that the imaginings and dreamings will perhaps be the most potent part of these podcasts because as we broadcast these to um, I hope many 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 uh, listeners and this can be a means by which people um, uh, can, 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 can imagine with us and um, take the seeds of, of, of the, uh, the, the thoughts and the dreams and the discussions here um, and, and take them further and also um, weave back into our mix 
conversations that we're not aware of. People that are thinking about these things, acting on these things, developing uh, the, the, the practical outworkings of these kind of thoughts about rewilding and just start a great big global conversation and perhaps um, see some of these things realized with this in itself being one of these means of mass communication uh, that, that, that we're talking about, conversations being able to take place across boundaries of, 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 of uh, space uh, that wouldn't have been possible for our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And so there we are. Welcome to the Worldwide Podcast. And I should mention at this point um, that the podcast is sponsored by Forager Limited and The Wild Box, which uh, I make <laughs> no um, bones about saying. That's also us. We are a wild food business which um, supplies restaurants at the moment and has, has just been um, starting to, 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 to do a uh, box scheme. Now, the wild box is a box scheme that is aimed at realizing the, the very same goals as the, as the World Wild podcast, because what we want to do is teach people how to use wild plants. Um, so it's one thing to know you can eat a nettle. It's another thing to eat a nettle. And to me, the thing that stands between knowing you can and doing it is simply having a delicious recipe, which you've been shown um, and you've done yourself. And now you feel confident and you feel that satisfaction and uh, and you'll do it again. So we're trying to do that with um, as many wild plants as we can over the course of a year. Um, and that's what the wild box is. We send seven ingredients, uh, details on how to use them and recipes to tell you exactly how to use them if you choose to follow that. So that's that's a plug for the wild box, um, which is sponsoring this podcast. So welcome and I hope you're going to come with us on the world wild journey. Now we move on to introducing this week's guest, who is Samuel Thayer from Wisconsin in the north northeastern part of the United States. Sam is a forager with very, very deep knowledge of plants, and luckily for us, he's also a forager that's written that knowledge down in three outstanding um, books. Most recent one, Incredible Wild Edibles, and then before that, there was Nature's Garden and Forager's Harvest. Um, and what makes Sam's book so great is that he has this incredible depth of knowledge with the plants, which, which is, um, you know, he's been deeply involved with plants since he was a small child, and he works teaching about them, but also harvesting them for big parts of the year. He does specific harvests, such as the wild rice harvest, and he's also managing land to increase the amount of wild food there. So this is the kind of depth of knowledge that goes into the book. So consequently, the format of all of his books is that there's only a few plants in each, but he'll go into great detail about the life cycle of the plants, how to harvest them, how to process the materials, and so on. So he's really set the benchmark for, for future wild food writing. Um, you can buy Sam's books on the web, um, including from his own website, which is a wealth of information uh, called foragersharvest.com. So... Without further ado, let's go on with um, our conversation with Sam. Okay, so I've got Sam Thayer on the phone. Hello, Sam. Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. This is our first um, ever episode, and we thought long and hard about who we wanted to ask to be the first one. So uh, we just um, really feel um, a kinship with the, with the kind of stuff that you're um, writing and the work that you're doing. And um, yeah, so we thought we'd start with you. Well, I am profoundly honored by that, and I I am excited about your podcast and, and about your intentions with it. 
Well, thank you. So the, the, the first topic I wanted to talk to you about, Sam, was um, just the issue of wild food and whether it's always going to be just a sort of niche sideline thing for um, those of us who choose to pursue it, or whether it does have real potential to be part of a, a global food system um, in the future. You know, Could we push back into um, a space of wild food supplying a significant amount of the the world's food, if not all of the world's food. I just just yeah wondered what you might have to say about that. I suspect you have a lot to say about it. Yeah, uh, it's something I think about quite a bit uh, because I enjoy foraging and I enjoy using wild food. I think it's the best food in the world. Um, I wouldn't be so passionate if I didn't think that wild food had a place in a world food system. And so I do think it's it's more than a niche. I think even currently we underestimate how important wild foods are in much of the world um, as as a significant dietary amendment. You could say, um, you know, for example, uh, the greens of black nightshade, Solanum nigrum, and its relate relatives are one of the most commonly eaten leafy greens in the tropical world maybe the most commonly eaten leafy green, and yet they are never grown intentionally. They are allowed to grow when they come up on their own in a, you know, a rural landscape and in an agricultural setting. So there's a wild food that's already contributing in a major way. But I think that we have the potential to... Could I just clarify, are you speaking about that, that, that species growing... Um spontaneously on its own or people farming it? I'm speaking about it growing spontaneously on its own. Um, uh, It's it's quite a fascinating situation. So um, whatever people are growing in the tropical world, whether it's it's corn in Kenya, uh, whether it's, you know, peanuts in in Ghana, um, almost anywhere you go in in the tropical third of the world, uh, black nightshade is, is being allowed to come up yep. uh, uh, or, or allowed to persist when it comes up spontaneously. It's, it's some hybrid between a garden vegetable and, and a wild plant. And I have the same situation in my own garden. Right. Um, we have a traditional garden, but we have four weeds that come up in the garden that we allow to take their space. Whatever mm. space they grab, we give it to them. And, and black nightshade is one of them. Um, and you're using that for the leaves and and the and the and the berries too, presumably. Yeah, we, yeah, we we eat them for the greens in early summer, and then when they start producing fruit, right about now in late summer, we start to eat those on a regular basis. And we do the same with amaranth, lamb's quarters, and purslane um, whenever they can come up in the garden, also. Um, but that's just the tip of the iceberg for the potential that I think that wild plants have. I mean, I suppose the 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 the, the obvious one that people um, will often raise is what about the carbohydrate staples and things like that. I mean, on on one level, I tend to think, well, that's a mistaken question because we we're gorging ourselves on carbohydrate staples to the deficit of um, other stuff that we might be eating. But um, the easiest role for wild foods to fill is the diversified vegetables that make our diets healthier. We do eat too many carbohydrates, but they are an important part of of human life because we have this enzyme, salivary amylase, for breaking down 
Carbohydrates. So we know that carbohydrates are, are, have, have been a long-term part of the human diet. Um, there are a lot of really great um, wild foods that produce carbohydrate that is, that is really an untapped resource. In North America, where I am, we have enormous production of acorns that are simply not yeah, used. Yeah, yeah. We have native wetland vegetables um, that grow thousands of pounds of mm. delicious edible carbohydrate per acre. Um, in the upper Mississippi River... And what sort of species are you thinking of there? Cattail, yep. uh, river bulrush, wild rice, American lotus, and okay. wapato, or arrowhead. And we have literally tens of thousands of acres of those yeah. in the upper Mississippi River wetlands in Central North America, and millions and millions of acres of those that have been destroyed. To, to, to destroy, to make way for agriculture? To make way for agriculture yeah. or to make way for shipping canals, cool. um, but, but mostly for agriculture. I mean, there's, there's so many points to lift out there. I mean, for, so for example, in our landscape, um, obviously we, we think about the first farmers coming here and what, what they were doing often is, is cutting down trees to make way for wheat. And of course, a lot of those trees were oak trees. And when you consider the, the tonnage of food that can come down from an oak tree and, and the lack of labor that's required to, to uh, facilitate that, it just seems to be an extraordinary thing to do. You know, let's cut down the trees. And then we've had lots of, like you, we've had lots of wetlands drained, which used to produce, I mean, I'm more familiar with, with estimates around um, the amount of fish and wildfowl that came off them, but, but, but it would be the same as, as you're describing there. What, what you call cattail, we call um, reed mace or bulrush here, but that would have been there. So the idea that we've cleared areas which were incredibly productive for food in, in order to um, you know, instate this rather precarious system of agriculture instead is, yeah, it's, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it really is. And, you know, I believe that people first started growing these field crops on a smaller scale to diversify their diet and, and to reduce the risk of crop failures with the native plants, mm. um, the, 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 the wild plants that dominated the landscape. Um, nut crops go up and down, and by growing a small amount of grain of, of an annual seed crop, you were able to respond to, to those fluctuations. Yeah. And there were lots of native seed plants in North America grown in economies that were predominantly nut-eating economies in ancient North America. But the idea of, of replacing all or most of those woodlands with those crops is, in my mind, a, a somewhat crazy, ecologically a crazy idea. And I really think it's not because it was the most sensible thing to do um, for people in general. I, I think it's that those grain crops were convenient to control and commodify in a way that allowed some people to dominate other people. It was political. That the, the food control of food sources was the, the central aspect of, of agrarian civilizations that were hierarchical and had this severely oppressed underclass of people. And of course, and of course those, those societies moved outward. It's, it's easy to track it out from the Middle East 
the Fertile Crescent and so on, move, moving out across Europe and so on, but eventually moving out across the globe to where you are and to Australia and things like that. So, I mean, it's just basically it looks like that agricultural system is fundamentally colonial in character and it's only a matter of time before it sort of attempts at least to evade, invade everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And and I don't believe it's the best system for human health, and it is certainly not the best system for ecological health. And we are reaching a point now where we have enough technology and enough material wealth that we don't need to seek the cheapest food alternative all mm. the time. Right. So that sort of selling point for the big mass industrial scale monoculture based food, that's actually no longer... Um, it's no longer the case. Yeah, just, just like when you go to the grocery store, you don't think, what's the most calories I can possibly buy for my dollar, right? right. I mean, that's how people used to think, and yeah. we don't think that way anymore. We need to realize we don't need to think that way about our food production systems either. We don't need to think, what is the cheapest, easiest way to, pr to produce food? We can now think, what is best for human health and what is best for the ecology of this planet we live on in the long term? We're at a point where we can make that decision, and wild food will be a part of of that new food paradigm. Mm. I like to think of it in terms of just a just a just a simple question of what is most beneficial, you know, because it it, it seems to me that when you find a thing that's most beneficial to us, it it just so happens to be the thing that's most beneficial to um, the wider ecology and other species. It's almost like one question. Yeah, yeah, yeah I really agree with that. Um, you said something really interesting earlier when we spoke about um, the, the, the claim that people make that um, agriculture began, could be the beginnings of agriculture would be traced back um, 10 or 12,000 years. Well, you know, the beginnings of agriculture can be traced back 10 to 12,000 years, but people often speak as if that's when the world switched from a hunting and gathering life to this modern yeah. ag agrarian civilization. And actually... The, the modern agrarian civilization that we think of didn't exist anywhere until maybe 7,000 years ago. It wasn't broadly spread until maybe four or 5,000 years ago. And even 500 years ago, agrarian civilizations only occupied about one half of the Earth's surface. So right. the idea that this is a 10 or 12,000 year old thing is really... Uh, absurd. It yeah. is almost like planting a seed of of some weed like kudzu in a fence line a century ago, and it took it 90 years to finally break out and start to dominate towards the end of that and say, well, this problem is 90 years old. You know, you know but we have this way of looking at the world that I call agrocentrism. We, we tend to minimize and ignore everything that is non-agricultural about the world and especially about human history. And, and, and even, even with these agricultural societies that we could look to going back a long time, there'd be very few of them who made no use of wild plants. Well, yeah, indeed, there's, there's virtually none until very recently. I mean, very recently. Even in um, the, you know, very large agrarian civilizations. If you look at Western Europe, until really recently, most people were rural and most rural people collected a good portion 
of their food from wild greens, wild mushrooms, wild fruits, wild nuts. And that was true in all agrarian cultures until quite recently. I mean, I don't know what portion of the calories, but somewhere between 5 and 20% of the calories, and they were meaningful calories because they varied the diet nutritionally and allowed people to be healthier. And even if you look at something very recent, if not current, you know, people talk about the Mediterranean diet. And to me, the most fine-grained analysis that's been done on that points to the fact that they were consuming uh, or are consuming massive amounts of wild greens, you know, that that's a significant factor in all of those statistics that they've got about low levels of cancer and heart disease and, and all this sort of thing. And that's really interesting because there's no, there's no, um, nobody's saying, oh, look at the hunter-gatherers in the Mediterranean. Clearly, it's, a, it's an agrarian society. And yet the wild plants there, it might not be for calories, but all of those leafy greens that they eat an awful lot of are having that very significant effect on, on the overall health of, of, um, of, of people who eat that way. Yeah, you know, that is a great point. And, and that's kind of one of the ways that I try to get people excited about this is how you first incorporate wild foods into your diet. It's the easiest way and it has the biggest bang for your buck as far as your labor and improving your health and enjoying the activity. And I think as as a world society that's where we start also is yeah. re, rekindling first that basic tradition that is still so alive um with leafy leafy greens you mean yes and you know i'm so glad you pointed that out because here in the united states we talk about the healthy mediterranean diet and we always focus on pasta and seafood and olive oil and those were parts of the mediterranean diet but the, you are absolutely right is the original uh, identified component of the diet that was unusual and different was lots of greens, particularly fried yeah. greens. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought I, I thought I was a hardcore wild food guy, you know, because of the range of plants I'd eat and the, I'd get quite a lot of it on my plate for dinner, you know. But I, I went to Lebanon and went to a house where I was cooked, well, prepared. It wasn't so much cooking. Um lots of different traditional Lebanese dishes. And I can believe it. It was it was a plate full of watercress that we dipped in olive oil and garlic, followed by a plate full of dock salad, which was mostly dock leaves with onions and tomatoes. And then another one which was eleven different wild herbs. It was an Arabic name which meant eleven different wild herbs and I ate that. And this this was this was just standard, one after the other. I'd never eaten so much wild food in one sitting in my life. So that that brought the point home to me that, that, that we're not talking about a, a garnish of a little piece of chickweed here. We are talking about significant consumption. For those of us who don't eat that way traditionally, mm. um, there's a lot of benefits to emulating that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, just going back to these massive areas of uh, wetland that you were talking about, if um, there was to be a large-scale um, harvest going on in those wetlands, I mean, can you, can you picture that in your mind's eye, that people um, being able to, to access that amount of, um, you know, starchy roots and, and, uh, and I suppose some, so at least some of that is the wild rice that, that you're particularly involved with, aren't you? you? You've got a wild rice harvesting business, yeah? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know what is the harvestable, you know, surplus per acre, but I do know there is a sustainable amount that can be harvested mm. and those wetlands can persist and still be fantastic for wildlife. And I know that that amount is large. Mm. 
Um, you, you know, nobody has quantified these things, even with wild rice, for which there are thousands of harvesters. Um, I've, I'm one of a small number of people that is, is a professional harvester and that I harvest full-time for part of my living during mm. that time of the year. We take a lot of pounds of rice off the water, and yet it is still teeming with ducks and fish, snakes and turtles and blackbirds. And, and um, you know, there is a large sustainable surplus that could be harvested of all those wetland vegetables. And if people were doing that, we would still have the wetlands. Mm. In many parts of this mm. country, the parts of, of North America that had the greatest concentration of wild rice now don't have any because they are, they've been drained for agriculture. Right. Wild rice is left where the soil is poor. Where I am in the upper Great Lakes, northern Wisconsin, northern Minnesota, we have very poor soil, and that's the only reason we have wild rice left. Yep. Southeastern Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Indiana, it, those places had a lot more wild rice, but it, all those wetlands have been drained. Um, millions of acres of wild rice and lotus and, and bulrush and all those things have been drained. And if people were harvesting that sustainable surplus and making a living off of it, we would still have all those wetlands and all that wildlife that lives in those wetlands. And it would, and it would be great for our hydrology, for our, for our groundwater, and, and, and for the clarity of all of our waters. It's like the whole picture, isn't it? Like the wild ecosystems are the result of millions and billions, in fact, years of subtle adjustments to develop this extraordinarily complex relationship between living things and geology and climate, which produces benefits for, for all of those different species. And, and the idea that we can come in there and substitute with a few mechanized processes and the product of just a few hundred years of um, scientific study, you know, the idea that we can trump that with something that's more productive and that's more beneficial, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's just like, I think we're just a little bit drunk on a little bit of scientific knowledge because it seems so powerful. But in, in the end, um, yeah, the, the, the wild systems put us to shame, I think, in terms of how it all works together. And, and I mean, obviously, you're pointing out the, the benefits to, to, to water, which we, relatedly, we work out, oh, that, that's pretty important too. That's, a, that's another factor of doing agriculture that perhaps we hadn't considered that it interferes with our water system, just as the transport system is now interfering with our air and, and so on. One of our problems is we, we look at what produces the most, uh, the most money per unit of labor and capital input. Right. Um, and that's not the criteria that nature uses. No. Um, and like you, I said this before, I'm an optimist. I believe that we don't have to look for the most efficient uh, outcome per labor input anymore because we are a wealthy enough world, at least much of the world, is wealthy enough that we are not bound to that efficiency the way we used to be. Yeah. We can now make the best choices instead of the cheapest choices. Those best choices are going to not only resemble what nature made, they will be what nature made. They will be some modified form of it with human influence, but they will be what nature made. And I think it's so interesting, just, just some of the stuff you wrote in your um, Forager's Harvest book that, that, that talks about um, there's an assumption that's made, especially by um, people who are sort of in the, in the conservation world, that 
any kind of human impact is a negative impact. And, and yet you point out that no one thinks that about squirrels and codfish and wild trees. <laughs> no one thinks, oh, look at that oak tree. It's having an adverse impact on the environment. You know, why that assumption is made about us. Yeah. You know, it's really a fascinating logical conundrum that people don't even think about. It's part of our mythology, right? We don't belong in nature. And so therefore, uh, everything we do there is bad. Mm. Well, if we believe that, then, then our only option is to destroy it because we have to feed ourselves and we can either destroy nature to feed ourselves or we can operate inside of nature to feed ourselves. And if we believe that it's bad to operate inside of nature, then we have to destroy it to feed ourselves. So this convoluted logic, it justifies the destruction of nature. And that is what I think a lot of people don't realize. I'm a conservationist. You know, I mean, I believe in preserving biodiversity. Yeah. I believe in having a, 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 a biologically wealthy and rich world. But that can include humans. Um, and, yeah. and I love your example of the oak tree. Every single thing that's in nature is killing something else in nature. Anywhere you see a maple tree, there can't be a spruce. And whatever insects need the spruce aren't going to be there either. Yeah. So you could look at it that, oh, the maple is killing off the insects that need spruce. But that's silly. <laughs> you know, that's just silly. So if you leave that natural system intact and you take from it without destroying it, something will always regrow. You can't eliminate the native community by harvesting. You can only change it. And if change is no longer seen as bad, then you can be part of it and still harvest. And that's how most people lived in all of human history until very recently is by taking from what nature offered, altering what nature was, but still letting it produce something of its own will instead of imposing our will on every single iota of, of what's out there. Yeah, so it's a two-way flow, right? It's that, it's that reciprocity and, and the idea that we, we, although we shape our environment, we are also shaped by it. And to me, that's, that's the main characteristic of uh, these traditional societies, is that their, their way of being in the world, it was fundamentally a relationship. Whereas, I mean, I feel you couldn't really characterize I don't know, um, any kind of abusive um, situation. You can't really characterize a situation where someone's totally dominating another person. That's not really a relationship, is it? Right. It's not a healthy one. As a, as a great example, in eastern North America, we have this tree, the yellow bud hickory, that the native people use to produce oil. And now when Europeans settled here, um, as soon as they got the technology over here to make oil from, I mean, they got most of their oil from lard, from beef, you know, um, but when they got the technology to make plant oils, th they made it, you know, from, from flax mm. and from hemp seed mm. and, and later from canola. And yet we have a native tree that makes oil just like the olive in the Mediterranean region. It's as delicious as olive oil, and it's wow. incredibly productive. And it's found over millions of acres. And not only do we not use it, 
but the cultural knowledge that it is a food has actually essentially disappeared. And this is astounding. I mean, this is just astounding. There is enough nuts that go to waste every year in Eastern North America to fill a section on the shelf of every grocery store on this continent with wow. that oil that's natively, that, naturally growing. And that's, that's, that's what's happening now, in spite of the fact that so much of this, the United States has been cleared for other purposes. Those trees are still there and producing that amount of food stuff that's going to waste. Yes, ab absolutely. I mean, I see people that have three of their tree these trees in their yard, and those three trees might produce 14 or 15 gallons worth of oil just in their front lawn, um, and they don't even know this, and they're paying to have them bagged up and yeah. brought to a dump. Madness. Literally. Absolute madness. Yeah. And, and what if we worked with the system to promote these trees, to increase their, their productivity? Um, it's not hard to do, and right. I know that because I'm doing right. it on my property. Okay. What, 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 what do you do? You just prune them a bit? Well, what? well, what you do is, is, is you create an ideal spacing of trees. That there, there's an I, ideal spacing that makes the greatest nut yield. And wow. it's not like by making that ideal spacing, you have a vacuum in between them because you allow sunlight through and then you have these sub-canopy trees like choke cherry. But you're not doing permaculture there. Could we, could we, could we just explore that? Because you, 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 I know you have a certain view about permaculture. Could you explain why that isn't permaculture? Sure, sure. I mean, I like the idea of permaculture. And when I was a teenager and I first heard that word, I really grabbed onto it. And I started, mm. I started learning about permaculture and becoming active in the permaculture community. And I bought a property. And I, I wanted to do permaculture on my property. And I was told you don't have the certification to say that you're doing permaculture and we're going to sue you if you use that word. And I, this seemed really strange to me. I started to read everything I could on permaculture and I realized my philosophy was something different than permaculture because permaculture is still about imposing the will of people on a landscape. And what I do, I call ecoculture. Right. And that is about selecting from the options of the landscape that the, nat the natural community gives what's you. What's already there. What's already there, selecting what works and what is productive and, 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 and what provides for your needs. Now, every place in the world is not equally productive. I, I, I understand that. Um, but uh, that's true with agriculture also. But mm. permaculture still takes that agricultural paradigm and still imposes it mm. on a landscape. And it still requires changing and working against the natural tendencies of a location to produce food. And that's not what the native people did anywhere no. in the world. The uh, native people did in the Pacific Northwest of North America, they didn't take plants that grew naturally in Central Asia and superimpose them onto the Pacific Northwest landscape. So even when they were farming, they were farming local native species. Sure. Well, and these these cultures in the Pacific Northwest of North America, they were considered fully hunter-gatherer with no agriculture oh. by Europeans, right? But they actually carefully managed all kinds of 
native plants okay. yep. extensively, but mm. the Europeans didn't see that. They weren't farming them because they weren't replacing the native communities. They were just creating ideal examples of certain native communities that were and, and managing the native community to be incredibly productive. Um, whether it was acorn orchards, um, you know, um, blueberry uh, blueberry areas that were burned regularly, right. uh, canopy thin so that the high bush cranberries and the native crab apples could thrive. Mm. Um, that kind of management. Um, so I don't not that I think that permaculture is is bad, but it has failed to catch on, and it has failed to really become a a, a an economic force like I think would have been dreamed 40 years ago. Mm. And I think that's because it's still trying to superimpose human will onto the landscape, but in a very complex form that's yeah. difficult to maintain. And I think it's more difficult than the agricultural paradigm can even handle. Right. Whereas what you're suggesting is, is, is relatively simple. That you just work with, um, I mean, it's like pushing a rock downhill, really, isn't it? That, that, that's something that's already got momentum, but with a few adjustments, you can greatly increase that momentum. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that is that's a good analogy. Um, I have a maple forest. It's dominated by maple already, and I've cut firewood to get a spacing that is ideal for making maple syrup. Mm. And I already have a lot of wild leeks in my understory. Um, but I transplant them out to different places so that they thrive a little bit more, and I weed out some of the other plants mm. that they're in competition with, some of the most abundant plants, and dramatically increase the productivity. I have another part of my forest full of butternuts, red oak, and hickory nuts, and I do the same thing to manage for those. Um, I cut alders. I have a mixture of alder with choke cherry and nannyberry and elderberry and the alders dominate probably 95 percent of the biomass well i cut out the alders where they're crowding out an elderberry mm. and where they're crowding out a choke cherry and where they're crowding out some nannyberry simply yep. by doing that i'm i'm making it a better place for wildlife i'm increasing the biological diversity and i'm increasing the food productivity and and you you able to make use of that alder somehow? That's got some specific use, or is it? I cut the alder and I I chip it yeah. or I pile it, and I basically am using it to make mulch beds. You know that benefit the raspberries. There's huge amounts of raspberries and blackberries growing in here. Also, this seven acre area that I have, and, and it's it's like it is because it's an abandoned pasture, yeah. and it grows up first into alder. So I'm I'm kind of speeding up the recovery of this you know, and making a more diverse landscape that's better for wildlife. Yeah. I mean, going back to something you said earlier, that, like that, that you're a conservationist um, because you believe in, in maintaining the biodiversity and that. I mean, uh, slightly controversially, I would say I am not a conservationist because whilst I believe in, in, um, in uh, maintaining biodiversity, I certainly don't believe in making everything stay the same. Um, and I think it's really interesting because what you're doing there is is heavily intervening in that landscape and and not making it stay the same. Which, of course, that's the literal meaning of the word to conserve. Um, um, it's it's really interesting that like in the past conservationists, um, sorry, what conservationists do is look at landscapes that in the past supported biodiversity, but they often did so because people were actively managing them. 
whether because of a particular farming regime or, you know, for example, people cutting back uh, reeds for thatch. And because of that, they created um, a specific kind of set of conditions that's really good for birds, you know. Whereas conservationists now will try and recreate that by harvesting reeds, um, even though they don't have a use for the reeds. So they all get composted or burnt or something. Um, and the extraordinary thing is that the, the same kind of mindset seems to oppose people making these sort of event interventions on wild landscapes now, i.e. To, to, to make use of the resources there, in spite of the fact that it's obvious that when people have done this on a, on a, on a um, non-industrial scale in the past, the result has always been um, greater biodiversity. I, I fully uh, agree with you. We're, we're just using two different definitions of the word conservationist, but you bring up a very, very important point, which is that uh, many of these diverse landscapes that we believe we need to preserve were created by humans. Mm. In my part of the world, we have oak savannas and pine barrens, which require fire. Mm. And people were often the agent that started those fires. Um, and I think that it, it can be problematic when we believe that, that humans aren't supposed to um, interact with the landscape anymore, mm. which we already addressed. I also say that I'm a conservationist because we do have places in the world where certain habitats are so rare today and certain plants and animals are so rare that we need to preserve them just in order to have enough time to refigure out how to have a good relationship to the landscape, a long-term relationship mm. that, that, can, that can incorporate those plants. For example, the tall grass prairie. You know, a lot of the tall grass prairie region of North America, that habitat is gone. We have areas of five or six million acres where the biggest chunk of prairie left is like a two acre lot oh, at a man. cemetery that wow. uh, literally, yeah. that's how utterly destroyed it is. Mm. Um, the only places where it's not destroyed tend to be here and there where it's rocky too yeah. rocky to plow, yeah. and that's less than one half of one percent. I mean, this is biologically one of the most productive by biomass, right, mm. ecosystems in the temperate world. And literally, it produced the best temperate soil, the best agricultural soil on earth mm. was produced by mm. the tall grass prairie. And um, the plants are so perilously close to extinction, and that habitat is. Since I, since I was a teenager, I've been really active in trying to preserve that and promote that. But this is just a stopgap measure because we need to figure out how to use the tall grass prairie in a way where humans interact with it perpetually so that we can have it perpetually because it's not going to persist for long as little tiny two-acre you know, no. plots. We need to figure out how to live on it with it and from it because if we had if we had economic use for that kind of habitat then automatically there'd be a big push to to to, to recreate that habitat right exactly exactly and you know the natural tall grass prairie community actually made great hay for cattle right and for a long period of time farmers would maintain tall grass prairies and cut them for hay but they weren't they wouldn't allow cutting three times a year most of the plants couldn't survive being cut three times okay. a year. So they replaced them with alfalfa, which they could cut for hay three times a year. Yeah. But 
there has to be some way to use that habitat for humans that doesn't have to require that absolute highest, greatest efficiency that, that would allow the tall grass prairie to, to be a perpetual part of the American landscape. Yeah, I mean, perhaps the answer lies in something that we touched on earlier, like the, how it interacts with other systems, like the water system and... and... Oh, yes, a absolutely. I mean, the Tallgrass Prairie is a, is a great water-cleaning filtration system, and it's a soil-building system. Right. I mean, all this farmland built on the prairie, it's just, it's just depleting the capital that, uh, that the, you know, the prairie has invested in the soil over thousands of years of building this black topsoil. Yeah. Tallgrass prairies in places have produced topsoil 14 mm. feet thick. Black mm. soil 14 feet thick. Incredible. So, anyways, um, but, I mean, I fundamentally don't have any disagreement with you. We're just, we're just focusing on different aspects and semantics of, of that one word, conservationist. But I believe that if we think about being stuck in the past and keeping things from changing, we're going to go nowhere. Yeah, exactly. Because because it's a living, dynamic system out there, isn't it? I mean, uh, I was saying earlier we we have places that are um, notified as sites of special scientific interest, but the trouble is when they're notified as such, it's a specific ra range. It's like a snapshot of what's there at that point, uh, the diversity of plants and animals. But then there's a legal obligation over the managers of those sites to keep it forever in that state that it was in, and some of them were notified back in the sixties, you know. So they're having to do quite radical things to just stop it from naturally changing, which is which is nuts. But um, I mean, but just slightly moving things on the, 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 to develop this idea of, of, of you know what's what's gone wrong with us when we've we've moved from the the um, the, uh, the the use of wild ecology in hunter gatherer societies to the, the agrarian society. That fundamental shift in the relationship for one of from one of like I was trying to describe earlier, like the two-way thing, I guess that's what we've been talking about all along, uh, to this one of absolute dominance, you know. And I've, I've done a lot of thinking about um, just different kinds of knowledge. You know, there's, there's something about the knowledge that goes into to, um, these two different systems, which is, which is fundamentally different, you know, that we have um, a kind of abstract knowledge which looks for some kind of mechanism that is going to, going to uh, produce a given result every time. And then we go wherever we choose to go with that, that mechanism, that particular strain of wheat and, and way of growing it that's guaranteed to give us a harvest. Um, but it's not that, that knowledge kind of precludes there being um, much of a response from us to the local conditions. It sort of presupposes that we're going to superimpose that system there. Whereas it seems to me that the kind of knowledge that, that happens when we're down on the ground working with um, the ecology and specific plants like we do every day, that's just, it seems to me that's a different kind of knowledge. That, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I think that the practical knowledge of being involved in nature is vital uh, before we can come up with answers to the big kind of questions that we're talking about. And um, I think it's unfortunate that there's a disconnect between the intellectuals that sort of drive our public discussion 
about these important issues and the people who do the actual physical work mm. that that involves the answers to the solutions. Mm. And so I decided long ago um, that I wasn't going to college because I would spend my life studying these things, but I would be putting my ideas to the test in the real world always mm. to make sure that they weren't, I wasn't wasting all my studying mm. with, you know, pie in the sky ideas. And the other, the other thing is, is we have, you know, a, a social kind of approval of, of a certain type of, I don't know, knowledge or a certain way of learning or a way of being learned that, that we, we see as having high status. Yeah. This is the, the academic view. And we often frown on the practical, mm. uh, the, the farmer in the field. Um, or very much on the hunter-gatherer in nature. I mean, in civilized people have long had this view that, that to be a hunter-gatherer didn't require any knowledge or intelligence, and so these people must have been stupid. You know, Victorian archaeology and anthropology is full of the assumption that hunter-gatherers were just stupid beasts, scarcely human or subhuman. And... Uh, Actually, nature is incredibly complex, mm. and you can spend your whole life learning about what's going on on one acre of land and never figure it all out. It's infinitely complex. So to achieve this kind of reciprocity with, with something so extraordinarily complex, it must reflect on, you know, that, that kind of knowledge must also be complex and, and highly sophisticated. Right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you, you, to develop the system of life that hunter-gatherers did required this incredibly broad input of knowledge and all kinds of thought processes to analyze that knowledge and come to conclusions about how to behave and how to act. And we're not intelligent, you know, in spite of our hunter-gatherer ancestry. We are intelligent because of our hunter-gatherer ancestry. It's what forged us. Yeah, exactly. That's what forged us. And, and, and we need to keep those relationships alive and active in order to have the knowledge to come up with the solutions. We need to be out there, you know, doing stuff in nature. Here's, here's a thought, Sam. I've, I've, I've taken this train of thought about um, knowledge. And, and I heard this phrase somewhere that said, knowledge is union. Yeah. And, and, Obviously, that's talking about this specific kind of knowledge, not, not the academic one. But the one that involves practical involvement and, and getting in, you know, participating in whether it's an ecosystem or, or you know, when we know other people, we participate in their lives. So that, that kind of knowledge is, is a kind of union. And I started to think, well, if you look at how we talk about union, like when we, when we really love somebody and we really get to know them well and, and we get on with them, we, we talk about that in terms of a bond. So I've started exploring this idea that when we participate in landscapes and with plants, that we're actually bonding with them and that there's almost that relational um, component which is, which is emotional and... I know there's things like loyalty that come into it. There's things of like a duty of care. I, yeah, I don't know if that sparks any thoughts to, to talk about it in that way. It certainly sparks 
emotions, Miles. Mm. It's it's um, I mean, I I you know this whole conversation. I keep feeling like you're speaking for me. Honestly, you know, it's uh, exactly what you said. I mean, Francois Couplin says we only we only care for what we love, and we only love what we know. And know as in that that intimate sense, mm. you know. Um, the the more intimately we know something, the more we care. And it's the same as it is with two people. Um, I mean, if you if you want to learn to love your spouse better, think of a question you have about your spouse, how he or she feels about a thing right. or a dream that you've never heard of, and get that story out. And when you get that story, you get that information, you're going to feel closer. Yeah. It's the same with nature. Yeah. Every time you figure out a new thing, you're, you're, you're touched by the intimacy and you're touched by the beauty. And we, we desperately need people to be, to be interacting in that way. I mean, we don't even, not only do we not know how to save it if we don't interact with it, but we don't give a dang about saving yeah. it if yeah. we don't interact with it. I, I I couldn't agree more with what you said. I I tell you what I'm gonna I'm gonna try and uh, I'm gonna apply that this evening to my spouse. That's a great idea. Think of that question. And and it's so funny because um, I actually was writing about this kind of thing this this week, drawing that analogy between getting to know people better and an experience I had. We were out harvesting dulse, you know, the the red seaweed dulse, and all the years we've been harvesting. I mean, we've been harvesting that commercially for probably. 13 years now I've used dulse in so many different ways but I've never really eaten the stuff raw on its own I mean I can't believe I haven't but but then there's a reason why I haven't and that's that it's a little bit you know the texture is a bit plasticky but we were out last week and I don't know for some reason I I, I did that I took quite a lot of dulse and just chewed down on it and kept chewing down on it until it broke down sufficiently to swallow and this flavor came out that was like crab and and that incredible umami flavor that you get out of the prawns that just explodes in your mouth i was getting that same thing out of the dulse and when i sat down to try and describe that in writing i couldn't find any other way to talk about it than than pretty much what you've just said there it's like you you know somebody for years and then they show you a side of themselves that that you've you've never seen before and it is it's it, and it's not that you've not been paying attention it's just that things take time to unfold and they gradually reveal themselves and i just felt like i had this disclosure from this dull seaweed that had just been hiding from me for for 13 years and there it was all right sam such a pleasure to speak to you and thanks for giving us your time it was really nice to talk to you and get to know you a little bit likewise very much